0: All right, if you'll turn with me to the 17th chapter of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 17. We'll be looking this morning at verses 17 through 21, and our subject this morning is the healing of a lunatic son. The healing of a lunatic son. We're picking up the story of where we left off last week after Jesus had been on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples and these are the events that are taking place after they came down from the mountain. So let's begin there in Matthew 17 and look, look with me at verse number 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Now this same story is conveyed to us in Mark and also in Luke. Now there are considerable differences between the account in Mark and the account in Luke. So if you'll bear with me this morning, I'm going to read portions of each one of those just to kind of give us some more uh, background as to these events as they unfolded. In Mark 9, verses 17 through 18, and you'll see I'm kind of jumping in that particular, jumping around in that particular chapter, and you'll see why in a moment. In Mark 9, verses 17 and 18, it says, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, And they could not. Now earlier in Mark 9, verses 14 and 16, it says, And when he, Christ, came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them, and straightway all the people when they beheld him were greatly amazed, and running to him saluted him, and he asked the scribes. Now notice we're seeing, getting a little bit more detail about who was there when this healing took place. What question ye with him? Luke, in his account, in chapter 9, verses 37 through 40, says, And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. Same story, three different passages. But when our Lord had gone up to the mountain, where he, we looked at last week where he was transfigured, of course he didn't take all the disciples and he didn't take the multitudes with him. So we are left understanding that nine of those disciples were left at the foot of that mount. He took three with him. How long he stayed there, we talked about last week, none of the three tell us how long he was there. But we do get the picture that this multitude and his disciples were waiting for him coming to come back down off of that mountain, probably not too far off. But as Jesus comes down with those three disciples he took with them, uh, we see that as they come down from the mountain, they come to a multitude of people. The multitude of people, maybe they were, they were waiting on him to come down, but there's a great multitude of people. And within that multitude of people, there is a man who comes forward, falls down upon his knees, and begs mercy for his son. Now, Matthew reports his condition, says he was lunatic and sore, vexed. Describes him as often falling into the fire, often into the water. Mark calls it a dumb spirit that tore him, that often he foamed and gnashed with his teeth, foamed at the mouth gnashed with his teeth. Luke says this was this man's only child, that he had a spirit that he cried out. It, It tear him, he foamed, and was bruised by it. By the very descriptions of this man's disease, or this young man's disease, rather, it appears to what is often called as having a falling sickness. Now, we have in our modern English, when I say the word lunatic, we have a, what we think that word means. We think about a person who has really lost their mind. Lunatic was actually a falling illness. It was a sickness that literally caused men to fall down from it. So much, in fact, that they would sometimes fall down into fire. They would fall down into water. They would foam at the mouth. They would beat upon themselves. With that disease, okay, so I want you to keep this in mind, with that disease... The devil joined in with this. This demonic spirit joins in with the disease that is already afflicting him. So this child, this son, is in this condition, not only with this disease, but he's also possessed by this demon. Now, we'll see in a few moments that, of course, there's a question that the father or a statement that he makes about the disciples. He says, I went to your disciples and they could not cast out this demon. It's a bit of a insult to the disciples that they could not do what Christ had empowered his disciples the ability to do. You realize that Christ had given the ability to the disciples to cast out demons. So then why could they not cast out this demon? So there is a bit of a, an insult being directed that towards the Lord that your disciples are not quite as powerful as what you said they would be. Now we have to keep in mind, what we see here about Christ calling them to, unbel- uh, to belief, this is not so much about calling them with respect to their justification or their justifying faith. This is the faith that is necessary to respect the power of God that's on display every time we see God being revealed, it should be a reminder to us about who is the object of our faith. Christ had revealed to the Jews that he was sent of God and that he was furnished with the power to cast out demons. And with the Jews and specifically the scribes, which one of the accounts mentioned, they were not believing that. Okay, so it's important that we keep this in mind, that these are the things that they should have known, and yet they refuse to believe, even though Jesus clearly declared and demonstrated he had these ability. Now let's give some characteristics here. There's a lot of background this morning, so bear with me. So the faith of the father of this child, he possessed some faith. Weak, but faith. It's not justifying faith we're talking about. It's faith in the ability of the miracle to be performed. So he's not without any. It's just very weak faith. But there's also a demonstrated weakness of faith on the part of the disciples. It's not that they have no faith. It's just a weak faith. He calls a group of people perverse, and faithless. Now let's just say at the outset, this is not directed at the disciples. He's not calling them perverse and faithless. Remember, one of the three accounts mentions that there are scribes standing there. There are scribes that are also hearing this account and hearing and seeing this healing that's taking place. He's not directing this as much at the disciples. Now he is saying they have weak faith, but he's not calling them faithless. And he's not calling them perverse. But he is dealing with a weak faith. He calls the scribes and those who would not believe perverse because they had so often seen the Lord do this. They had experienced his power. They had heard him speak. They had seen the thing that he had done that was, should have been so clear and so strong that they should have believed that he had the power to perform these miracles. But yet we see that there is a level of unbelief here. So notice with verse 14, as we kind of pull this narrative, and I'm gonna be referring back and forth to, to Mark and Luke from time to time, and I'm gonna move quickly, so if you're used to turning to those pages, you'll have to do it quickly, but I'll try to give you the references here. So it tells us that when they were come to this multitude, okay, most people believe that this was uh, the, the very next day when they came off. Uh, it, it's indicated in, in Luke's account in Luke 9, 37. They come down from the mount, and this multitude of people who are staying there are waiting there, and there's this certain man. Now, Mark simply calls him one of the multitude. Luke calls him a man of the company, who at some point during Jesus' ascent to the mount of transfiguration with the three disciples had applied to the disciples who remained at the foot of that mount on behalf of his son. In other words, he had gone to the disciples, when Christ was away. But he says what he asked for, the disciples could not do. Now we might say about the father, as the father could have waited for Christ to come down from the mount, and that when he saw him, he could have immediately run to him and could have waited, but he had applied to to those disciples who were left saying, this is what's happening. But you'll notice that when Jesus came down, I want you to notice the posture of this man kneeling down to him. Now, kneeling down to him is a sign of someone who's pleading. It's also a sign of a worshiper, but it's a sign of a person who's begging. It's a sign of a person who is not only worshiping, but believing that this person has the ability to answer whatever he's pleading for. He has some worship of him. He has some respect for this man. And notice his request, Lord, have mercy on my son. He addresses him as Lord. It's a great mark of honor. It's a great mark of respect. It's not only by his gesture, he's on his knees, but also by the words he says. To to ask God to have mercy upon my son is to crave after to diligently request for. He's craving the mercy and the pity and the compassion of Jesus to be placed upon his son. I think we can use it as an illustration. I think every parent in this room, if we had a child who was afflicted, this is how we would go to the Lord. We would be pleading and begging for mercy. His condition of his son was a miserable case, no doubt. He's very diligent. He's very earnest about what he's asking for. He's not asking for his own mercy to be extended towards him. He's asking for the mercy to be given to his son, his own son. Luke in his account says, for he is mine only child. So therefore, he has a great affection for his son. He's greatly concerned, as would all of us. He wants his health restored. He says he is lunatic. Lunatic. He's not a madman. He's not insane. He's troubled with this falling disease, which many of the commentators were in agreement with this, that it was a form of some type of epilepsy. It was a disease that did create and cause people to fall. And more interesting, and I did not examine this, so those of you that get really interested in like some of the side things, I may say, almost all the commentators agreed that this was something also, that this disease was affected by what the moon did. So that's a fascinating study. If you want to go off on that, you, I'm not going to touch that this morning, but it's, it's interesting. Almost every commentator I read agreed that it had something to do with what the moons were doing, especially at a full moon. How that's all connected, you'll have to study for that, study yourself on that. But it is interesting uh, as I came across that. So he is sore vexed. Again, this is where that comment, most commentary said this, sore vexed at the beginning of full moons. Whether or not that's exactly everything that was happening is that's when these, these episodes came on. But he had very frequent episodes. It says he oftentimes, he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. It shows that this lunatic condition, this epileptic condition, this falling sickness that he was afflicted with, when it seized him, if it would seize him by a fire or it would seize him by a water, a place, a body of water, or any other dangerous situation, he would fall into it because the falling sickness, he couldn't help himself. So the words are very descriptive here as to what's happening. The point is, he couldn't do anything about it. Now, we do see that there is a larger account that I read a lot of this in Mark 9 about this disorder and the circumstances. Uh, If you look over at Mark chapter 9, um, and let's let's pick up at verse 20, and this is a little bit down the road. We'll come back to this. It says, "...and he brought him unto him, and when he saw him, Straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, and oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose." So we're getting these pieces from each one of the Gospels that's kind of filling in what's happening before us. What's in a lot of agreement is what happens is that the man says, I brought my son, my afflicted son, to your disciples. And they couldn't do anything. Matthew's account says they could not cure him. They couldn't cure him. Now, if we didn't have the other accounts that we read, we would immediately say Jesus has to be answering only one person or one of two groups of people. He's either got to be now talking to the disciples or he's got to be talking to the Father. But as we've seen in the account in Mark and the account in Luke, there are other people standing there, including the scribes. And because the scribes are standing there, the scribes were particularly the ones who did not believe. He says, "O faithless and perverse generation. Now, there is a sense in which this father, no doubt, must have been saying to himself, I thought your disciples could do this. I thought they could cast out demons. I thought they could heal. And I believe that there is a bit of what happened. But we see the response of the, of the father in the account in Mark that we just read. We see, he says, help my unbelief. I believe, he says. But let it be observed here that as this father, he's given a bit of a contradiction saying, I thought your disciples could help. Now remember, three of the disciples were gone. They were with the Lord on the mount. But it is clear from Mark that when he came to Christ, he had little faith, but he had some faith that Christ could do this, or he wouldn't have asked. He says to him in that account in Mark, If thou canst do anything, help us. After Christ talks to him, we saw in that reading, he could only say, Lord, I believe, help mine unbelief. And then that brings us to verse 17, when Jesus answered and said. Again, I don't believe this is to the disciples, and I don't think it's even necessarily directed right at the father of the child, as we saw over in Mark 9:19. 9, but I think it's directed more at the scribes that were present, who were also disputing with the disciples, who no doubt were upbraiding them with the weakness and how they couldn't do what God through Christ said they could do. And, oh, faithless and embarrassed generation is a way that we don't see being used of speaking of the disciples. Now, there were times the disciples did appear to have little faith. And Folks, every one of us experiences moments in our life when we demonstrate little faith. But if you demonstrated little faith today about something, I would not look at you and say faithless and perverse generation you are. I would say you were having a time when your faith was weak. That's what's happening here. He is not upbraiding the disciples, even though he's going to deal with them personally. He, he's not letting them off the hook, but he's not calling them faithless and perverse. He's going to deal with them, and he's going to tell them exactly why they couldn't do what they were supposed to be able to do. But it's not because they're faithless and it's not because they were perverse. These were words that were often re- re- reserved for those who were characters who were denying the very God who had come. This is not a new expression. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, way back in the Old Testament, I want you to see the language that's being used. Uh, back here. And I want you to see if you recognize the language that's being used for those who would not believe or had no belief. Deuteronomy 32 verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath brought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee thy elders, and they will tell thee. When, that, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He was drawing a strict line between those who were of his people and those who were not. He's not telling his disciples that you are faithless and perverse. But they did, they did show weakness of faith. He goes on in the account in Matthew 17 and he says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Now, according to the other accounts in Mark and Luke, you can see that he then has turned and he's spoken to the father and he's telling the father, bring your son to me. Again, this is an example where if we could put it all in one story, it'd be much easier for us to see. But he then addresses the father and he says to the father, bring your son to me. Now, he is upbraiding those who he's called faithless and perverse. He he talks about the length of time he had been with them. He talks about the many wonderful works he had shown them, and yet they still remained unbelieving. It gives us the, the intent here about how long will he be patient? How long will he be with them in long suffering? Now, again, remember, Jesus one day is going to the cross and he's begun to announce those things. We didn't read it, but verses 22 and 23 we'll deal with next week. Jesus again reminds them that I've got, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be put into the hands of, of, of wicked men, and they are going to kill me. His time to deal with them is short. Bring him hither to me, meaning the child. Luke 9.41 the exact words are, bring thy son hither. So we know he's talking directly to the Father. Bring thy son hither, or bring him to me. Verse 18 in Matthew 17, Jesus rebukes the devil. The words have also been rendered other translations. And Jesus rebuked him, and the devil departed out of him. But the very sense here is he's not rebuking the Father. He's not uh, rebuking anyone else. He's rebuking the actual devil. Okay, he's not rebuking the child. He's not rebuking the father. He's rebuking the devil. Mark 9 and Luke 9.42 uh, respectively say he rebuked the foul spirit or he rebuked the unclean spirit. Okay, now, again, don't lose sight of the fact that he also had the kid, the child had a natural disease. Okay, he did have this natural disease, this falling sickness yet he was being afflicted in even a greater level that the demon had latched on to the sickness that he had, so he was possessed with the devil, but he also had that sickness. Now again, even afflictions of this son were by divine permission. This was not just something that randomly happened that God had no control over. Bodily diseases, illnesses, sicknesses, We often make a grand mistake when we tell somebody when something afflicts them, we say, God had nothing to do with this. I don't know how else to break it to you. Yes, he did. He's sovereign and he's providential in all things, including our afflictions. We can't just just disjoint God from certain aspects of our life and say, look, God has nothing to do with this some of these afflictions and some of these illnesses that God allowed to be put onto His people were teaching times for the people. They were given to them at times in order to learn to trust Him. But we see that Jesus did rebuke the devil. He departed out of him. When did the devil depart? At the command of Christ. That demon could not withstand Christ's command whatsoever. When Christ rebuked that devil, that devil immediately came out. That demon was obligated to obey the command of Christ. But then notice, it says not only did the devil come out, the child was cured from that very hour. That very hour means directly, immediately, and continued well. This was not a temporary removal. This was not a temporary healing he is now immediately cured, and the demon is removed. Now again, the account in Mark gave us the tone that it was, it was that devil did not want to come out, we gave more details as to what was happening to the son as the devil was being commanded to come out of him. But you do have to also keep in mind, Jewish tradition would say this. Especially these scribes, that if you were taken over with a disease, they automatically assumed you had a demon. In other words, you weren't sick unless you had a demon. They connected all these thoughts together. But they ascribed this same disease, this falling sickness, to the same cause, and saying the only reason that the child had this was because the demon was there. The disease was there, and the devil was using that disease. No doubt he was possessed. Verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart. This just means secretly, privately. And when they are alone, Mark actually says, when he was come into the house and was by himself, the disciples come to him and they ask him a question and said unto him, why could not we cast him out? In other words, why could we not cast that demon out? Why could we not cure the son? Why could not we heal him? Why could we not do any of those things? Again, one commentator put it this way. I'm not saying one way or the other if I think this is the only thing that that could have been. That there could have been some fear on their part, humanly speaking, that they had lost the power which Christ had bestowed upon them. That there was some kind of a failure Again, whether or not that 's the only case of their question is because they couldn't do it. They were told that they would the demons would be subject to them they 'd be able to cast out so but there's a question why but they 're not really looking at the true cause they 're not looking at the possibility that the problem was their inability to cast out you see what's happening here they're questioning this power we don't have something's gone wrong what's wrong with the power that we're supposed to have why couldn't we do this and just like man is we often don't look inward and see that the problem was not with the power that Christ bestowed upon you. The power was with you. the problem was with you. Not perverse and faithless, but weak. Your faith is weak, is what he's going to explain to them. Jesus very directly, oftentimes, remember Jesus has this way of teaching where he asked, someone asks him a question and he doesn't really answer the question directly. He goes on and he tells another perspective or another way to explain it. He tells them flat out why. He says, because of your unbelief or because of your little faith, the smallness of it. These disciples were not destitute of faith. These were not unbelieving people, but their faith in the miracle being performed was very small, very weak. Christ says it's not because of the unbelief of the child, the parent of the child, not because of the unbelief of the scribes. Now again, each one of them had their own things. The scribes were perverse and unbelieving and the father had weak faith. But he says the reason you couldn't do this is because of your unbelief. Not because of the father's failure, not because of the scribes, but because of your unbelief. The the child's father, we see in that account in Mark, that he confessed it. I believe. But these disciples had thought they had lost their power of doing miracles. And notice how the conversation goes on. He says, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed. Now, I think it's a grand mistake. This is not to be interpreted about the quality of your faith or how lively it is or how fervent it is. What Jesus is saying here and what he means here is that if the apostles had even just a small degree of faith in exercise, which you could compare it to the smallness of a mustard seed, you could have done this. Again, we, we, we have these ideas in our Christian circles that I just, I just have, have to have a more lively faith. I need to be, it has to make, the quality of the seed's got to be better. That's not what the intent here is. Again, this is not about justifying faith. This is not about the faith of believing in Christ and believing in Christ as their Savior and Redeemer. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the faith of these miracles. Again, these were things that were happening during the times of the apostles. These are the things that were confirming Jesus Christ's Messiahship. It's it's what we have revealed to us today that we read about that the disciples didn't have. Then he gives another illustration. And he says, not about the mustard seed, but he says, ye shall say to this mountain. Now perhaps he's pointing to the mountain he just came down off of. So maybe it was in sight of where that mountain was, maybe within sight of where the house where they were at. And notice what he says to them. He says, Uh, he says that if you have faith as a grain of mustard, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove. Now, the prosperity heresy people love this. They use this verse as if Jesus was teaching that they're literally going to be able to move the mountain. He's using the illustration. This This is more allegorical and figurative about what you can do with true faith. Jesus never had in mind of the disciples. Look, if you just have enough faith, you can say the mountain that was on a mountain that was on for the transfiguration. If you have strong enough faith, that mountain's going to be picked up off of its off the ground and it's going to move wherever you want it to get. That was not the intent. He's comparing this very weak, very little faith they have of why they couldn't cast out the demon and saying, "But if you have proper faith, that's the grand Concepts of what can take place. It shall remove. If they had but faith, when God's glory is at the heart of it and the good of man requires that. So the apostles were not being told, hey, once you get your faith in order, you're going to be able to move this mountain. Remember, the Jews were insulting them that they couldn't even heal a child. And Jesus is telling them, your weak faith. If you have the faith that you should have equally, nothing is impossible. That's what the account in Mark actually read. Nothing is impossible with God. It's a reference to things that are difficult. Nothing shall be impossible to you. You shall not only be able to perform wonderful actions as healing this child, but anything that is for the glory of God. Now again, that's going to have deep ramifications for what they're getting ready to do. Jesus is not just talking about healing. He's talking about the faith that is going to be required for the enlargement of his kingdom, the confirmation of truth, all the things that the disciples are going to do. Jesus has all these things in mind. He's not just talking about this one instance. But then he says, how be it this kind goeth not out or other translations say is not cast out, which confirms the common received sense of these words. This particular demon, this particular devil that was within him, we do see that there are varying levels of demonic influences. Uh, uh, Matthew 12.45 actually makes mention of a, a demon coming back that's more wicked Matthew 12, 45, then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also one of this wicked generation. It means that this particular demon was an obstinate one. This was one that was not going to be removed without this type of faith. Now often people again have made the connection that the reason was is because they didn't fast and pray proper, didn't pray properly. But again, what Christ is teaching and suggesting here, that not only was their faith wanting, which is the reason they could not cast out the devil, they could not heal the lunatic, but that they had been relying on themselves instead of relying on him to carry out these gifts. Christ and the other three are on the mountaintop. Jesus is talking about even their frame of mind as to approaching this. They did not seek the Lord the way they should have. The reason assigned here by Christ why his disciples could not cast out this devil was their unbelief. Not that they were totally destitute and not, didn't have any, but the weakness of their faith. Folks, we do see here that the power of faith and that even though you and I, as children of God, we are all prone to fits of unbelief. Where it's the plain sense of what Jesus is talking here that it is a firm exercise of faith in Christ. He's speaking of true faith. Faith. It's believing in the promises. It's believing in the miracles in which he has worked. They had been given divine power to do those works. That promise is found all throughout Matthew 10. He gives them all the things that they're going to be able to do. He wasn't lying to them. He wasn't telling them that there was going to be a power failure with him but only he was to be the object of their faith and the object of their power. Now this, we're not supposed to take Matthew 10 and take all those things for ourselves. One of those reasons is why you don't come into this church and you don't see a box of snakes at the front. It's unnecessary, and that promise was not given to you and I that we should take up serpents and not be bitten. Or that we're going to have the same authority that these disciples had. But the problem was not with the Lord. The problem was not with what they had been given. The problem was that their faith was weak. And it wasn't where it should have been. God, Christ, had promised to give them the ability to do these things. But the apostles had a weak faith. Certainly, they had not prayed as they should have. Certainly, fasting, which is, is in a way subservient to prayer, they didn't do as they should have done. Folks, oftentimes, what we do in our life by way of an application, but what we do in our life is we watch until everything in our way fails, and then we try to turn to Christ. We try it our way first. And then if that doesn't work, we turn to the Lord and say, okay, God, I couldn't do it. When in reality, the power is not in us. The power is in Christ. We not only have the power to bring those that are afflicted, we have the power to bring them in faith. Again, the passage is not about how do I get the power that the apostles had. The intent is not how do I I have enough faith to pick up a mountain literally and move it. How do I change the quality of the mustard seed? It's the object of our faith is in Christ Jesus. The object of our faith is in the right person. Again, the extraordinary power of Satan... Which, by the way, he does have power, but remember, he is defeated. But it should encourage us to not step out and try to do things in our own power, in our own strength, but to rely on the faith of the promises that God himself has given to us. Folks, we ought to be praying people. One of the greatest neglect that we have, and this is going to tie right in with Wednesday evening, one of the greatest problems, and why we're having so much problem with our assurance, is because we're neglecting the very thing God has given us to strengthen us. We neglect prayer, we neglect the promises of God. Your faith is going to experience times when it's weak. And if you're honest before God today, You have moments where your faith, you're almost asking yourself, do I have faith at all? But it's only when we see the apostles that we say, boy, they must have been a bunch of unbelievers, as if that couldn't have happened to them. It happened to them, it can happen to us. It doesn't mean that we're faithless and perverse generation. It just simply means we're having times when we have neglected the very power and the promises that have been given to us. Again, this is not a prosperity gospel text. This is not about how to move the mountains out of... This is not not about how to move the mountains that are in your road. This is about the object of faith. Our object of faith should be in Christ. Jesus, again, continues to point people back. Do you not see who I am? Do you not see what the prophet said about me? just like what was on the Mount of Transfiguration, why Moses and Elijah were there. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and he is a perfect fulfillment of the prophets that Elijah was. This healing could not be done by the disciples because they had a weak faith. They were not faithless, but it was weak. I pray the Lord will help deliver us from times when our faith becomes weak, when it becomes distrusting, You know, there are some that will stand before you and say, you should, you will, if you're truly a child of God, you will never have weak faith. I don't think that's biblical at all. Because there are going to be times, because of our human condition, because of that old nature that's still within us, our faith is not going to be what it should be. And that's what was with the disciples. It wasn't what it should be. Not that they were not believers, but it was weak. Father, I pray you'll help us this morning, Lord. Lord, there's so much that could be said and so much more we could have spoken about in this text.